Hi, everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we discuss the meaning of everything. Today is episode number 27, and I'm having on a doctoral candidate named Sam Morse, who is a specialist in literature and the ways in which reading affects us. Sam Morse is a fascinating guest and important guest. The conversation that we have ends up being long and winding and adventurous and curious and very important, touching on very important ideas. You might think literature, what, you know, what is somebody going to necessarily have to say about the human condition, but as it turns out, quite a lot. Sam specializes in something that I actually also specialize in. It's called affect theory. And it is this understanding that people are now having, uh, it's becoming pretty trendy these days, now having in the study of things like literature and also politics. And uh, it's an understanding that thinks of human beings as deeply emotional and subconscious and constantly networked in our environments and also it has this really important and powerful idea in it that emotions are not as private as we once thought. They are always coming off of our bodies and coming into our bodies subconsciously, right? With our body language and uh, the tone of our voice and all of these different things and the environments around us. And so there's this huge public exchange sort of always ongoing and happening in our emotional lives. So Sam and I talk about that a lot today and implications for politics and Twitter and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's going to be really great. I actually, I found Sam's work when Sam found me through Instagram and through the work that I have done previously in women's health and embodiment. And she basically just said, Hey, look, I've got some cool stuff. Uh, or I think what you're doing is up to is really cool. And I took a look and I was like, wow, yes, actually what you're doing is also very cool. And, and would you like to come on the podcast? And I'm so glad that I am connected with her because she's a, she's a powerhouse. She's going to do great things. She's on a mission to make reading cool, make reading sexy, uh, sexy is my word. Cool. I think was hers, uh, make reading sexy again. And I think that's really great. And I'm absolutely so on board. So I'll read you a little bit of her bio to give you a taste for, uh, her work, and then we'll, we'll jump right into the interview. Sam is a doctoral candidate and teaching fellow in the Department of English at UCLA, specializing in long 19th century British literature. She teaches Introduction to Critical Reading and Writing for undergraduates, as well as pedagogy, course, pedagogy courses for graduate students. Her research focuses on the genesis and evolution of supernatural and horror fiction, with special attention to the intersection of affect, aesthetics, ethics, and politics. Her dissertation examines how the feeling of dread is represented in British literature from 1750 to 1900. She has published in the Journal of Victorian Culture. She has also published in studies in the novel. Although specializing in 19th century literature, Sam is deeply concerned with the resonances of her work in present day culture and has a forthcoming article in Cultural Critique about the overlap of historical Gothic and modern punk aesthetics. While not reading and, and stewing in a state of dread, says Sam, she is an avid, avid trail runner and triathlete who thinks a great deal about the overlay between life of the mind and the life of the body. Sam has a website. It is Samantha Morris Fit Lit, as in fitness literature, because she thinks a lot about the connection between the body and the mind. Samantha Morris Fit Lit. 
com. I will link to that in the show notes. Okay. That has been enough introduction, I believe. Here, without further ado, is our doctoral candidate, Sam Morris. Okay. Uh, hi, Sam. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, me too. I was actually just telling people in my introductory blurb that we sort of we sort of met through my work in the nutrition space, right? That's how you sort of found me. Um, I was so grateful. I'm always so grateful when people say, hey, I like your ideas because I happen to really like your ideas. <laughs> I love it when that happens. It's fun when you can make, I don't know, podcasts, social media friends, and then develop it from there. I think like taking it to the next level is, is pretty important. So I'm really excited to try to do that with you today. Yeah, don't worry. We have already, est- <laughs> we have already established that. No pressure. We're good. We're colleagues. We're friends. Um, yeah, I find it very interesting. I don't do a lot of work. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about literature, although I do when I think about narratives and how humans connect mm-hmm. with narratives and especially with religious stories and the like. And so I think it's, I think it's, it's fascinating what you do. And also it's, uh, it's really important. So can you sort of, instead of me rambling about it, can you tell us in your own words what it is that you're doing? Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm glad you said that because one thing that I hope your listeners take away from this talk today is like literature can be so much more than just like a, a novel, right? Like I, so I'm a PhD candidate at UCLA. I'm going to be finishing up next year. I'm a teaching fellow. So I teach undergraduate classes, um, the critical reading and writing, um, a seminar, which is of my own design, where I teach students how to close read. And hopefully I can tell your listeners a little bit about that um, and how to, yeah. I mean, so close reading is just amazing because in the 21st century, we're reading all the time. We're reading Twitter and Instagram and articles and emails and hopefully literature. And I think the same skills can be applied to all of those things, not to mention kind of film, watching, watching or listening or reading the news, like, we're bombarded with language 24-7, and close reading skills can be applied to that in all cases. So, so basically at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, I teach students how to pay attention to all of the things that they are reading and how to interpret that kind of on their own terms and derive meaning from it. Um, so I teach undergraduates that, and I also teach graduate students. I teach, I'm like the teaching assistant consultant for the English department, which means I teach graduate students how to teach undergrads. So my work is really teaching focused, and that's that's really what I'm passionate about doing. Mm. Cool. So this sort of, let's dig into this close reading thing, since yeah. you're so into it, and it seems really cool. I really, I like what you were saying about how language is, is bombarding us. In what ways are we receiving and and responding to language? Yeah. So to illuminate what close reading is, actually, I wanted to do uh, something that maybe your listeners would understand. So going on my phone and I pulled up your Instagram this morning um, and I looked, I looked at the post you just wrote um, so it's a beautiful image of a cathedral, I'm thinking, some kind of religious space. 
And so I, so, you know, you're on Instagram, you see the image and you're like, oh, that's really pretty. Like I'm interested in Stephanie. What does she have to say? And so the first sentence says, I might not be religious, comma, but I know how beautifully religions can be lived and practiced. So if, you know, you're just on Instagram, you're going to read that really quickly, kind of keep flicking, maybe read the whole thing, maybe not. But if you're going to close read, you're going to read this slowly and you're going to think just about that first sentence. And as an English PhD, my first thought is, huh, that's interesting. She has two ideas here, which could have been two sentences. She could have said, I'm not religious, period. And then I know how beautifully religions can be lived and practiced and have those as two different sentences, kind of short and simple. But you chose maybe consciously or subconsciously, you chose not to do that. You chose to do what's called a compound complex sentence. And, you know, you don't need to know that term, but you can recognize that these two ideas were combined into one with the conjunction, but for a reason. And so my interpretation of that is for you to say, you are establishing your subjectivity. You're letting your reader know who you are and it's, it's contradicting the next thing you're going to say in some ways. Like, I might not be religious. So you might be surprised to find that I find beauty in this thing. So you're modeling what you want your reader to do. A, a reader who might not be religious, you are hoping that they will find beauty. And you have done all of this just by using a comma and but. And, <laughs> and you know, a reader, if you're not reading closely, isn't paying attention to this. They're not aware of what's going on, but they might feel that. You might have kind of kindled that feeling in them. And so why I think close reading is important is that language, whether it's from Instagram, it's from the news, it's from a novel, it's always impacting us and, and trying to get us to feel certain kinds of ways. The author might intend it, they might not. You as the reader might be aware or you might not, but that kind of interaction of feeling is happening by the way language is constructed. So close reading is just tuning in and trying to figure out how the structure of language is having that impact. Right. So I dislike the language of mindfulness, mm. but, but it's yeah. almost as if you're sort of advocating for a mindful way of relating to things that we ordinarily just process and they're impacting us, right? Like this is your argument. They're always having a subconscious effect on us but we're not necessarily seeing it. So you're saying you're providing ways for people to understand how they're being affected. Exactly. And you know, if we don't want to use the word mindful, which underst- you know, understood because it's part of a different discourse, um, a word I like to use a lot is attention and attentiveness. Yeah, so it's, it's just like, how, how are we paying attention to things? And I think something that um, a lot of people in academia and public discourse in a lot of fields talk about is our distractibility kind of in the 21st century. Um, And so a lot of the work I do is it's not that I'm anti multitasking or productivity or all those things, but I think what my kind of message to my students, what I'm hoping to cultivate in people is choosing to pay close attention to things at certain times when they matter to you. Mm. Yeah. uh, You mentioned distractibility. There's another phrase that I really like that I learned from some people in San Francisco, which is um, attention economy, right? Yes, yes. And, and this is a way to sort of monetize the idea, right? Um, and understand that there is a very real 
attention economy in our world. And I know this is a little bit tangential to reading fiction, but when like social media platforms are sort of competing for our attention yeah. and there are so many ways that they capture our attention and images are, are, is one of them in videos and what have you, but also the language that people use. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, uh, especially outrage, right. Things that make you really angry. Like these are the kinds of things that are so arresting to us that we get pulled into them and, and they're just, they're just words, but they're the kinds of words and the kinds of phrasing and whatever that like involve us as a whole creature. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad you kind of mentioned how people get riled up about the attention we're spending on social media. And that seems very like an urgent issue today. But historically, this has always been an urgent issue when it comes to literature. So I specialize in British literature in the 19th century. And in this century, you have the rise of newspapers and um, literature was being published serially. So you wouldn't like you couldn't just buy a book like this unless you were upper middle class, um, wealthy. So that's like a pretty limited readership. But you could go and buy a, a penny newspaper. And in that newspaper, they actually weren't called newspapers to avoid taxes. They were called journals, so periodicals. Um, so in that periodical, it would have maybe a chapter to five chapters of the latest Dickens novel or a penny dreadful kind of these salacious crime stories or adventure stories. And so it was really interesting that you had working and middle-class people kind of for the first time in history, able to buy these kind of short bits and they were supposed to read it on the bus on the way to work or kind of in these like quick moments they could snatch between working because there wasn't the leisure time that we have more of today. And so cultural critics and kind of the upper echelons of society were also writing in their highbrow literary journals about how they were so worried about what the working classes were reading. And like if what they were paying attention to was of merit or if it was distracting them from their work or making them not think well of their betters. And so this kind of the cultural stakes of what people are paying attention to and reading and how closely are they reading it has historically been an issue ever since kind of reading for pleasure came about, which was in the early 19th century. So it's cool how you can kind of trace that arc to the present day. Yeah, that, that is very interesting because, you know, people will point out how, say, on a subway car, everybody is looking at their phones and scrolling through their phones. Yeah. But 20 years ago, it was something else and 200 years ago it was something else you know it wasn't a it wasn't necessarily a time where people always dutifully paid attention to the nuances of their surroundings and wanted to right. engage with others and you know like that that's sort of, sort of that's idealizing the past Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there were more communal forms of reading, certainly in the 19th century, like because literature was expensive, you know, a family would maybe buy a novel and they would read it out loud together or people were really into like buying these pamphlet versions of plays and like performing a family play together, which is like, I don't know, my family did that. Or the kids did that at Thanksgiving in my family, but that's like not usual you know we like made it up ourselves and it was like amusing and kind of cute but like that's not like a family evening activity these days no it's not and it's also very funny how private reading is now 
Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And for pretty much all of history since writing was invented, and this is something I think about so much, you know, I think we radically underestimate how much these changes have affected us as a, as a species, but reading, reading was oral, right? People read things out loud. And I remember you can, you can fill in details on this or tell me how wrong I am. But I remember reading about how the way text was written was often sort of for oral reading. And so you would see like a the on the cover really, really big, which would indicate like somebody's going to say the when they're announcing the title of a book really loudly, right? Whereas today that doesn't make sense to us because we want to see the words that are going to capture our eye. But if you're hearing a book, then it, then it's a totally, totally different experience. Absolutely. And, and that's why kind of older literature, what people think of as, you know, super old and difficult. It's a lot of it is written in verse or it's poetry because that's easier to memorize, easier to perform. It sounds nicer on the ear. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and this is another thing I think a lot about in my research. Um, I'm really interested in the overlap between reading literature and kind of the construction of emotional communities. Like how does literature make us feel how does it construct and represent emotions and how does it kind of create these like shared communities of feeling among readers? And so if we're thinking historically when maybe people were reading out loud together or they were all going to the theater together, when reading was more social, it feels obvious that reading would construct these kinds of emotional communities. But I do think that that's still happening today. Um, not maybe necessarily with novels, but I think podcasts with Audible, kind of with the emotional communities that are crystallizing around certain figures, like Sam Harris, one of your favorites. <laughs> you know, for example, you <laughs> you have um, you have these emotional communities of people who think and feel a certain kind of way, and that's being actively constructed through language. Mm. Uh, can we take a brief detour and talk about the relationship between thinking and feeling? <laughs> oh, I just, I find it so fascinating how much we bifurcate them and yes, in, in our discourse, but in actuality, there's, it's almost impossible to separate them. Absolutely. So I know something we're both interested in is the idea of embodied cognition. And I'm not an expert in kind of the cognitive psychology, like the, the biomechanics of how this works. But basically for your listeners, what embodied cognition is, is the idea that the way we think and by association, the way we feel um, comes from our bodies and their interactions with the environment. So when I tell people that I am an affect study scholars, um, affect, it sounds like a very fancy word, but it's what scholars who study kind of emotions and feelings, it's the term we use to express the idea that emotions are not internal and private and just coming from within, but it's about our relationship with the world around us, um, the built environments, the natural environments, the people we're coming in contact with, and how all of those things are impacting our bodies, our minds, and our feelings, and how we in turn are impacting those outside spaces too. So it's this really permeable understanding of of human and world, I guess. So would you add anything to that? Do I, do I have embodied cognition down? <laughs> I know. I think that that's, I think that that's really good. And I also, I count myself as a affect 
studies scholar. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I actually came to Oxford and I had no idea what that was. And I had a very firm idea about what my dissertation was going to be and everything. And my supervisor, who's the most wonderful human on the planet, had me spent like read 50, 60 some odd books in affect. And mm-hmm. I was like, come on, really? Do I have to? Right. <laughs> and it ended up, it ended up being really transformative to me. I think if I would add anything and it's not particularly relevant to this conversation, so it doesn't need to be added, but I think it's really important for understanding of us as a species that we understand that affectivity is very animal, right? It's not unique to humans. In fact, Mm -hmm. I I think of our thinking as sort of mapped on top of it or interlaced with it, but it was an evolutionary add-on. And Mm -hmm. really it's sort of the way that all, like it's the way that evolution gets us to do stuff, our feelings. And it's the way that evolution gets other animals to do stuff. And so we have to understand that, A, we're, we're very similar to other animals in this regard, right? Pretty much the same. And B, we, we need to understand that the, the way that we think and feel is not predicated on logic and isn't objective or necessarily true. It's something that is like deeply, deeply felt in a way that is just a, byproduct of our animalness, you know? Yeah. I, I love that you kind of dig into the evolutionary biology side of that. The, when you were talking about all of the affect theory books you had to read, the book that for me was really transformative in how I think about affect and literature, it's, um, I think his first name is Charles, but last name Altieri's book called The Particulars of Rapture, which is a really dramatic title. Yeah. <laughs> but but the the premise of the book is that he's looking at how aesthetics, so the techniques to make art art, um, how aesthetics constructs and manipulates sounds negative, but influences mm-hmm. affects. So the relationship between the techniques we use to make art and the feelings that that evokes. And so, can, can you just, I mean, when you're done saying what you're saying, can you explain, please, all of those techniques to us? Yeah, okay, okay, so... <laughs> Um, So art versus literature, art is obviously painting. So if we're talking about aesthetic techniques for painting, that would be something like the kinds of brush strokes or the tints you would use or um, one that I'm really interested in because I focus on like the birth of horror literature and the gothic and kind of fearful literature. So an artistic technique in art that I'm interested in is called I'm going to butcher it because it's actually an Italian word, um, chioscuro, which basically means you're playing with dark and light and you have shadows. Um, and so it creates this kind of spooky, creepy, uncanny vibe through the playing of light in the art. So the feeling that I'm most interested in these days and what I'm actually writing my dissertation on is the feeling of dread. That's so, so dark. It's so <laughs> But you know what? It's actually not, though, because dread is, is a wonderful feeling. And, and part of the work I'm trying to do is to show that dread is a really important feeling, mood, atmosphere for thinking about the world and taking an ethical stance on your place in the world. Um, and I feel like I've gotten on like a really far tangent from Kaya Oscuro, but what made me think about it was because when you have these planes of light and dark and you have the uncertainty, and this is all visually in front of you. So you see something and you're like, huh, like I'm not really sure what I'm seeing. Or maybe there's something 
kind of like a blob or something kind of aggressively spooky in the corner of the painting and that catches your eye and you fixate on it mm-hmm. and you wonder what is this thing like what is this trying to represent but you know it it makes you feel uncomfortable and that's the thing you fixate on and so where dread comes in is dread is this feeling of fear about the future and it's a future that's unclear its object is ambiguous and it's slow paced. It's not a concrete fear. It's not like the lion in front of you that's going to make you scared. Um, but it's something that makes you pause. So talking about attention again, it's something that's, um, it's slow. And so you keep thinking about it and thinking about it and wondering, but instead of this being a bad thing, like what I argue in my work, what I think the literature shows is that when you are worried about what might come to pass, and you think about it a lot, you think about all of the bad outcomes that could possibly happen, and you're motivated and intellectually enabled to take action to bring about the best possible outcome and and do the right thing or the best possible thing in that situation. So that's my dredge spiel. (laughs) So there was a lot on that wandering path that we could unpack. Uh, I am curious about this idea of dread. Is it necessarily true that it makes us want to do the best possible thing. No, no, it is definitely not necessarily true. So any, I mean, anybody who studies affects will tell you there's like no such thing as a good or a bad feeling or like a revolutionary or a reactionary feeling. Like they're, oh, they're always going to be like across the spectrum. But I think there are a lot of examples in literature, kind of in gothic horror and and frightening literature that shows kind of the positive effects of like the characters, the good guys who experience dread and how that helps them make good choices and stories. Mm. Okay. So let's tie that back to stories, right? What is it about so in, in the realm of embodied cognition, I have done a lot of thinking about the concept of simulation, right? And yeah. so when we engage a character in mm-hmm. a novel or there's something happening, right? There is always a question. We know that reading affects us, right? We get drawn into these stories. Mm-hmm. But what is it that's going on for us when we're reading literature, right? And I think that this is then kind of related to why you think literature is so important. Yeah, absolutely. So Kendall Walton, a philosopher, wrote a wonderful article in the 80s that I think is still one of the greatest articles on simulation in literature and fear in particular. It's called Fearing Fictions is the article. Um, and so it's a, it's a very elegant argument, so I'm, I'm going to oversimplify it. But basically what he argues is that when we read something and, and we feel fear because of it. He's, his argument is that like, we're not actually, we don't really feel fear in the same way that I would feel fear if there was like a threat in the room with me. Like it is a simulation. And what he thinks is that we are make-believing to be afraid. Like our, our bodies and our brains know that like we're, we're playing a game. And there's, a, and there's a pleasure in playing that kind of game and in making yourself afraid. And you're, you're really convinced it is real. Like I'm sure everyone's had that experience watching a scary movie where your heart rate is actually increased or you know, your, your pupils have changed 
you know, you, you're breathing, your respiration changes. But he argues that you're actually convincing yourself so much that you're having a physiological response. So it's the idea that your, your feelings can actually change your physiology just as much as your physiology can change your feelings. So it's really this like crazy reciprocal relationship between them. So what I think is happening when we read and we allow ourselves to become absorbed, and I realize that's kind of um, a funny thing to say to allow yourself to become absorbed because I think a lot of people expect that a quote-unquote good book just sucks you in and they put a lot of agency on the book itself. But I think that we have to have some agency in that too. Like you have to allow yourself, you have to give yourself over to the book in some kind of a way. Um, so there's a back and forth relationship between you as the sentient being and the book as this, as an object. Um, but when you allow yourself to participate in the simulation and make believe, then you are allowing the book to act upon you as much as you are acting upon it in the act of interpretation. And so ultimately, I think this is a really important thing for people to do this kind of active reading because when you simulate in a fictional world, you can practice feeling feelings that maybe you don't encounter in your everyday life or in a more nuanced way than you encounter in your everyday life. You can also encounter characters or situations from diverse places, you know, diverse things that you wouldn't normally encounter. And you can simulate, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. But again, that's not the book doing that to you. That's you allowing yourself to do that with the book. And I think that's just so important. Mm. Yeah, there's, it's very, it's very interesting. I try really hard in these podcasts to not go off on how my normal intellectual conversations would go because there are so many <laughs> things I would like to impact there. I'm going to let that happen a little bit right now. So uh, <laughs> there's, it's, it's really fascinating, uh, this sort of question of our agency, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you, I, I think once was very attached to the idea that I am my own person and yeah. I acquiesced everything that happens to me and, and et cetera. Right. And am in complete control of, of me and my interactions with my environments. And it was really when I, you know, started reading an affect that I came to realize just how uh, I would say environmentally contingent we all are. Yes. Uh, and and I, I just, I don't know, I, I find this this debate really fascinating and I don't know where I sit on it. The first paper that I ever wrote at Oxford, it's not, it's not published, but it was about the concept of free will in, mm. in affect and it would do people ever preserve the idea of free will. And if you do, what does that, what does that look like? And what does, what does that mean for who we are as as selves, and I, I do think a big piece of the the work in affect is trying to teach us, right? Like you were saying, when we read something, when we read an inst- when we scroll through Instagram, and that's obviously why people like pictures because they're so effectively compelling to us, right? Mm-hmm. They're and they're easier than words. Um, but you know, these things sort of are always impacting us, and people I think don't really understand that there are tendrils of things, and I think you're right. There's some reciprocity here because you have to be open to the tendrils but usually we I would say we don't know that we are 
open, right? We don't know that we're being affected by things. I just watched a show where people got hallucinated or um, hypnotized, right? And I think it's very similar is that often people don't sort of know that they're, that they have an openness. They have to be open, but they often don't know that they have an openness. Um, I'm going to leave that there. I don't have a question. I'm sure you know. <laughs> no, I'm, I just love that you said that because that's kind of what I see my mission as a teacher doing to, to alert my students to the fact that you are being impacted by these, by language everywhere. And so I am also very invested in the idea of agency and, and wanting to empower people to have agency, to be open to being affected, but, but then to have agency in how they're interpreting um, kind of those signals. So an assignment that I have my students do is their final assignment after they've kind of learned how to close read literature and poetry and drama and kind of all the traditional things one would do in an English class. Their final project is that they have to close read something that is not literature and they can't cheat and do like a movie version of a book or something like they, I tell them like figure out like something you're passionate about, like something that you're really into right now, like something, something that's kind of all over your life. And I want you to close read that. So I've had students close read like a vegan YouTube chef's channel. Um, somebody, somebody did um, like a promotional video for the David Geffen School of Medicine because he was applying to medical school. And he did this amazing close reading of, of kind of the language techniques they were using to create a certain emotional attitude about the false joys of applying and participating in their medical school program. And you know, for me, I think that's the most important activity like anybody can do to like take these skills of paying attention and allowing yourself to be moved by things and then being an agent and interpreting what that means for you and for other people and not imposing that opinion on other people, but just being aware how that might be impacting other people. So what people could do then if they haven't, if they're not sitting in an English course where you're showing them what commas do and what different kinds of conjunctions do, right? What people can do, I think is what you're saying is they can read a sentence or half of a sentence and just sort of sit with how it affects them and try to notice what it was about that particular sentence or how it was constructed that affected them in that way. Exactly. And so my formula for this is actually something really simple. So you first of all, you recognize you're having feelings. Okay. And then you're like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling joyful. And then you're like, okay, what did I just read? And you, and just read it again, maybe just a sentence and then pinpoint of the word or a word, or maybe the, the punctuation, if it's an exclamation point or something in that, in that sentence and be like, oh, okay, I can see how that's maybe contributing to my sense of feeling. And, and what I tell my students when they're reading things is to look for things that are beautiful, weird, thought provoking, or confusing. And like, if you really tune into those four things, beautiful, weird, thought provoking, and confusing, I feel like those are the like affective basis for the best kinds of interrogation. Like that's, it's just a really fun way to be in the world. If you're always looking for those four things and kind of interrogating like what prompted that to? 
That's very interesting. Um, I probably would have thought, and perhaps this is obvious based on what I was saying earlier about outrage, I feel like it's really yeah. important to notice when we're angry, mm-hmm. which, and, and that feels right. That's maybe not something that I'm going to feel if I'm reading Voltaire, right? I right. Might, I don't know. Voltaire was feisty, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm on Twitter, right? Yeah. I mean, people, Mm -hmm. there is a sense in which social media is where people go to be angry sometimes. Right. Right. But um, I I think in today's world, I think it's very important to, to watch for that. And it might not necessarily be thought provoking or make you philosophical, but it will certainly make you aware of what triggers your anger and hopefully help you think through it in a more rational way. Yeah, absolutely. And so yeah, in the 19th century literature, I teach like people aren't, my students today aren't generally outraged by things unless there's like an egregiously misogynistic or racist comment, which then we can be outraged, but it's it's from our, our present day consciousness. But I mean, I, I think as in terms of intellectualizing outrage, I think it could be a really constructive activity for people to pinpoint what exactly it is that is making them feel the outrage. Is it a certain word because it's a slur or it's vulgar or like what's the tone of the word and then maybe consider like are you reading a certain tone into that word because of of what you're bringing to the table and and imagine how that that term maybe has a different implication for the person who wrote it based on their position in the world or how other people might be interpreting it and I think when we become aware of those aesthetic techniques, you know, to bring that term back in, if we become aware of the techniques, whether it's the punctuation, the style of writing, um, maybe it's the fact that it called a person out by name and you perceive that as being aggressive. Um, You know, any of these stylistic things, when we become aware that you're like, oh, they wrote this in such a way and that's why I feel this way. I think when we pay attention maybe to those kind of formal details about the way things are written, that can allow us to have maybe a more objective, rational, cool-headed approach to the content itself. And maybe then we can share some more conversations. Are there certain techniques that are common or uniquely powerful that we could be on the lookout for? Mm. I I know that's a, that's a tough question on the spot. I'm thinking of, um, so obviously the way that Trump speaks can is its own world of effective power, right? Very sad. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So anything with like all caps and exclamation points, like I would just be wary of. <laughs> right. Right. Um, is there anything, I don't know. That's interesting. Anything that we, anything else that we could pinpoint that is a trap, an affect trap. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I actually have thought about this a lot and, and I was only partially kidding. Like, I do think that we should definitely have red flags go up for things that are in all caps. Like that is actually a pet peeve of mine in some ways, because I know like m- social media marketing 101 is to like put things in all caps to like catch people's attention. And what I would encourage your listeners to do maybe just in their own use of social media is to just be really conscientious of when you're putting things in all caps, because are you using those caps 
as a crutch to catch attention when the words themselves aren't actually meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd say if all caps and, ex- and a lot of exclamation points are things we should be against or use less, I think what we should do more of is choosing the right word, you know, just really think about what word do I want to use? Um, And I think that kind of specificity and maybe just taking the extra second to think like, am I feeling happiness or joy or elation or good? You know, just like even kind of tuning into the the kind of word or the kind of verb you want to use for something can be can be really helpful for your own self-expression and and making more meaningful messages in the world. Yeah. And I think it can also be helpful for right. You said messages in the world. It can be helpful for your relationality, too, because, yeah, right. People get a more accurate picture of of what it is you're trying to say. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. actually super important, but also. I think when we become more reflective about what it is that's making us feel certain things, we realize how much the feeling comes from what you were saying earlier, like what we're bringing to the table, right? And so say somebody says something that's, we perceive it, like we're, we're hurt by it. And you could at first have an impulse to say something that is just broadly upset, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm really angry, you're really mean. But if you think a little bit about the specificity, you could actually think like, oh, I'm hurt. I'm actually, what I'm actually feeling is hurt or I'm feeling wronged, right? And, and that's different than just saying angry and throwing an accusation, right? Um, oh, that's such a great example. And, and just to bring that back to literature, I think another reason along those lines of why literature is so important is that when you read, you get this amazing access to the the inner worlds of different characters. So we can, when we're reading, a big part of stories is often seeing those miscommunications. A character does one thing and we understand what they're thinking behind it, but the other character perceives it as rude or an affront or something. And we see from their perspective how upset they are and they're, and they're bickering. But we as the reader know they're actually supposed to be in love and they're going to fall in love. And we have this like great oversight into why why things are going to work out for them. That's kind of like the, the romance genre effect, mm-hmm. but it, it also works in tragedy as well. Like when a character feels like you can see that they're feeling like they're doing the right thing, but we as the reader can see that they are not doing the right thing and this is going to end badly. And that's like why we feel so sad at the end of a tragedy, because we understood how the world was working and how the character thought the world was working. And we know that they didn't line up. And so I think, you know, literature can teach us these really important things about the structures that make feeling and action not line up or not work out sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I was really like addicted to store reading stories when I was a kid, you know, nonstop. Yeah. And I, I wonder so much about the impact right, in sort of cultivating empathy or the ability to step into other people's shoes. I'm sure there's tons of literature on the ability of literature to sort of cultivate this in us. So it's, this is a really funny thing, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but I can sketch what the discipline says about it, in that people who aren't English PhDs just <laughs> widely, widely believe that reading literature increases empathy because intuitively I think this makes a lot of sense. Like intuitively I believe that as well, but among 
academic, like English scholars, nobody believes that reading cultivates empathy or makes you a better person. And then the joke is, well, English professors aren't nicer than anybody else in the world. And I don't quite understand that joke, actually, because in my experience, I've had like a number of like very humane, like wonderful relationships with English professors and English teachers of all sorts or people who read like I've I've had really lovely experiences. Maybe they're not better than my scientist friends because I adore them as well. But so Martha Nussbaum, actually, um, who is a philosopher, has has spoken about this a lot and I think has gotten a lot of flack from English scholars. And I don't really feel kind of well positioned to take a stand on the debate. But her argument is that reading contributes to our sense of flourishing. Um, that's her exact word, like flourishing and being in the world. Hmm. And literary scholars... I think are critical of this in part because it doesn't pay enough attention to issues of gender, race, and class, which literature can reinforce in a really negative way. Like 19th century representations of women are not awesome. You know, (laughs) like they're not, they're not great. The Victorians were not like feminists. Um, And and that's just something I, like I feel uh, really positioned to speak about. But I do think that we as critical readers of the 21st century can certainly go back and read these older texts with that attention to how they're contributing to pow- like power dynamics that are problematic and still gain empathy and pleasure and all of the good things about reading them. Like we shouldn't write them off because of, of certain cultural problems. Yeah, um, I think I like your perspective. I agree with you. I wonder, right, because there's so little cross-disciplinary talk, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I actually have not read psychological literature on this. I can easily see how the argument would fall, how you can make an argument for both cases, right? There's no reason to say why reading, just like why watching a movie, right, isn't necessarily going to make you, it's not necessarily, right? You could come in as somebody who's unempathetic and leave, right? If you're not going to pay attention, Right. You're not mm-hmm. going to pay attention. And so there's this very life question of does reading make you pay attention or just provide an avenue in which you can pay attention? The latter. It's de- I think it's definitely the latter. <laughs> yeah. That's a r- really important distinction. I'm, I'm glad you just said that. So does, is there a way for us to convince people to pay attention other than to put them in your seminar? Now that, that is the big question. <laughs> I know it's the big question. That is the big question. And it's one I think about a lot. And I mean, it's, it's why I wanted to come on your podcast. Um, I have, I actually have my own website that tries to encourage this, but like, I don't really think that my personal blog is going to change the world. You know, like I do have a lot of skepticism about this. And so um, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on on how we can get people to pay attention <laughs> to to read closely and voraciously and broadly. I have some. I don't know how good they are. You know, unfortunately, I think you know there's this field of studies now where people just study problems, <laughs> and there's this concept called like hard problems, and hard problems are basically hard problems, right? Um, they're, they're very hard to solve and humanity is a hard problem, period, yeah. you know, full stop. And I think I've, I see so many of the pieces 
you know, there's so many different pieces and I feel like they need to sort of move together. Right. And, and often if you don't have one, you don't have the other. It's just like when you're um, raising children in, you know, not necessarily the best environments, you have to be really conscientious about making sure all the pieces are in place for them to be supported sort of thing. Um, I did recently have a man on this podcast named Eric Kruglansky, who's a social psychologist and have done some work also adjacently, somewhat relatedly in, in terror management theory. And I think something we can do is, I think something we can do to make, to help people pay attention more is to make their worlds safer, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I yeah. mean that both proximately in terms of like their day-to-day concerns, their economic concerns, their social network, like all sorts of concerns. Um, and I also mean, psycho spiritually or psychosocially, you know, mm-hmm. and, and help people also feel like, oh, here's another thing I think would be really good, uh, is yoke people's sense of significance to their attention and open-mindedness. And actually, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people who advocate for certain things who spend a lot of time thinking about what's cool and how powerful the concept of coolness is. And can we make minimalism cool? And can we make paying attention mm-hmm. cool? Um, but people's significance is really important. And so if we could somehow create these values and, and tie them into your social value, then I, then I think we would really be getting somewhere. Although I think that that's, this is what I'm trying to do as a personality. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's probably, it's pretty far down the line. Um, that's brilliant. I just never thought of it like that. Making, <laughs> making I'm dusting dirt off my shoulders cool. for the people who are not watching the video. <laughs> I mean, well, it's so funny. It's so obvious at the same time. It is so obvious. Well, what's so funny was that like reading did used to be cool and like going to the theater and discussing it was what the upper classes did and the upper classes were cool in the 19th century. Like that's what people wanted to be like. And there were working class groups of people and they were called clubs where they would go after their like 14 hour shifts at the factory and they would read an essay and discuss it with each other. And that was cool. And they gained social capital and in some cases class mobility in that way. Mm. Um, But I think, I really do think it's quite important what you said that you, it requires a level of safety and the privilege of leisure in some ways to be able to pay attention and do this kind of work, you know, like, I mean, I even think of kind of mindfulness and like mindfulness meditation, like what an immense privilege to get to sit for 30 minutes and not have to do anything. And that's a privilege that a lot of people, many people in the United States and obviously across the world don't have that 30 minutes to sit and do nothing and empty their minds because they're working three jobs. They're raising families. You know, there's, there's a lot of social inequity, which does impact this process. Um, and I think, I think we do need to pay very close attention to that. Yeah, definitely. And even then, I think once we sort of, you know, it's very interesting because in the West, in America or what have you, there is inequality, certainly, you know, but there is also like a, a certain sense in which many of the people who live in the States have had their basic Maslow needs met, right? They have, right. Mm-hmm. They have shelter, they have whatever. 
and we're sort of entering this era where we have these things in, in highly developed countries. And then people are like, so what? And instead of directing, and sometimes people direct their attention productively and other times we become complacent and anti-intellectual and yeah. hate the mechanisms in our world that have actually enabled us to, to have this degree of safety. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I have another question for you because you said anti-intellectual, which is something I think a lot about because I, I do feel kind of an increasing wave of anti-intellectualism kind of in our, in our culture these days, which I don't quite understand. And I'm wondering what you, what you make of this. And is there a way that we can make intellectualism cool? <laughs> mm. Well, it's a question of making intellectualism cool for the right people, right? Because for a certain, a pretty large group of people, intellectualism is really cool. And in some ways, that's a problem because then people who aren't intellectual are not cool, right? We have this, yeah. we have this big divide. Um, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but there are many people, of course, who really value education and tend to be liberal. And, and many people who really don't, sorry, really don't like intellectualism, I think, I gave a talk on this a couple of weeks ago. I think the roots of this go back to when post civil war when, and, and again, this was very socially politically contingent, but I, I think there's a lot of philosophical stuff here as well. I think, uh, I think certain groups felt really threatened by, you know, their value system felt really threatened by liberalism generally speaking, by biblical criticism, by the sciences. Um, and, and then that splintered. I really believe that it goes back, it goes back that far. And intellectualism became, now it's something that you can like hate pretty easily, but in a, you know, sort of in a cavalier way, but there's a very serious underlayer in which intellectualism is trying to rob you of the things that matter most in your stability and your understanding of your world and your spirituality. Right. And um, I think we really need to um, understand that these are communities that have been marginalized and are trying to protect themselves. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's my take on what we need to do about it. I mean, be nice first and foremost, which unfortunately is becoming a, rarity in our world precisely because of the things we're talking about and how hard it is. It's hard to keep people's attention when you're being nice. It's very easy to keep people's attention when you're being upset or throwing a temper tantrum as our president has demonstrated. You know, I, I do have a theory on this though. I think it's very easy to capture people's attention with um, kind of the urgency of outrage, but I, I do think in the long run, it's easier to sustain people's attention with, with the positive. Like it, they might not jump on at first, like, but I think once they're there, it kind of has this positive momentum of like, that's like the thing that you finish. And to bring it just back to literature, it makes me think of, you know, like a, a really long work of literature, like a Dickens novel. And those things are like 900 pages, like they're hard like the first 200 pages are really hard by 400 pages. You're like, well, I'm already committed. I've read so much. I may as well finish it. But I swear those last hundred pages are like eating an ice cream sundae because all of that like buildup, like all of that commitment that you've given to the setup 
mm-hmm. and kind of this meticulous detailing that Dickens is such a master of once it's like you're pushing this like boulder up a hill and then you get to the top and then one little poke and then it just goes rolling down this hill and you just have this like amazing emotional payoff for seeing kind of all of that hard work build up and it's so positive that you plow through those last hundred pages like so quickly and then you're really sad because you're like oh no like I don't think I can start another Dickens novel it's a huge commitment but you're on this like emotional high from kind of the the wrapping up of all the positivity so read Bleak House everyone that's really cool. I'll put it on my list. Um, we're coming up on time. This has been fascinating. Is there anything left that we haven't discussed or that you would like to mention or point to before we go? Hmm. What I would suggest to your listeners, um, something that I'm like really trying to put out into the world is to get people to read more literature and they think of literature really expansively like not capital l literature that you must learn in college like getting people to read um and so i have a website which you can link to in the show notes but i actually make reading plans on the website um and so i'll start off with something like a movie or a really popular book like harry potter or the mad max movie or something something that's super popular that i know a lot of people like and it kind of establishes a genre or a theme So um, one of my favorite reading plans is called the Memorable Monsters Reading Plan. So it's based off of The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture last year or the year before. Um, So if you you really liked that movie, then I'll say, well, you should try reading this book. And it's something that was probably written in the past 10 years. And it's a pretty easy, easy book. Anyone can read it. And then I'll say, well, if you like that one, then you should read this book. And it might be a little older, a little more difficult. And then I bring you back and back and back until... You kind of, it's like a training plan for a marathon or something. So you start off with something that you already like, you know you can do, and then you build up to something that's older and more difficult. And so in that way, you can train your attention and kind of sit with these books a little bit more. And I just encourage people to read and pay attention. That is so cool. Okay, I definitely want to talk about that more. Can you tell me what that is so I can link to it in the show notes? Yeah, so it's just my name, Samantha Morse FitLit. So fitness and literature, which are kind of my two things. Right. Um, okay. And that's, yeah, that's it. So, and I'm, I'm always posting new ones. So I'm, I'm just really trying to make reading accessible to kind of really large audiences. And I do focus on kind of sporty people because a lot of people listen to Audible and I'm really pro listening to books on Audible. Um, and so it's something great you can do if you're running or commuting and kind of expanding what it means to read. It doesn't have to be this lonely, isolated activity. Like listen to it with your family in the car on a road trip and talk about it. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. Um, cool. Well, um, this has been Sam Morris and she's great. And I am Stephanie Ruber. You know where to find me. Thank you everybody so much for tuning in. Um, thank you, Sam. Thanks, Stephanie.